Welcome to the show. A little bit later on, we're going to meet the man who made Bumblebee. That's Travis Knight, the director of the new Transformers film. This film's a little different, a little calmer, a little more gentle than any of the Transformers that's come before it, and it's pretty great. We'll get to that in a little while. We'll also meet some of the stars of Aquaman, the big DC comic book movie in theaters right now. First up, though, I want to introduce you to Emily Mortimer. You know Emily Mortimer from her work on The Newsroom. You know her from movies like Harry Brown. She's been in a lot of stuff. This week, though, well, she's in Mary Poppins Returns. Mary Poppins Returns is a sequel of sorts to the original Mary Poppins movie from five decades ago, 54 years ago to be precise. In that movie, in the original, Jane and Michael Banks were little kids. Well, now they're all grown up played by Emily Mortimer and Ben Wyshaw, and they're having some problems. And Mary Poppins comes to visit with them and set everything right in the world with them again. It's a fantastic movie. It is the best of old and new Disney. I really loved this. I think your family will too. And I was really tickled to sit down and have a chance to speak with Emily Mortimer. We'll share this interview with you now. She studied literature at Cambridge her father was a writer, a very famous writer, so I thought we'd start off by talking about the books, the Mary Poppins books. Here's Emily Mortimer. <laughs> Congratulations on Mary Poppins Returns. Thank you. So you studied literature, yes. which I would assume means that ever since you were a little girl, you've been a, an avid reader. Was Mary Poppins on the list of books that you read as a child? No, actually, not as a child, but I've been reading them to my own children yeah. um, as a grown-up. But yes, I didn't think I, I don't think I realized there were the books of Mary Poppins mm. until I had children of my own. But I was an avid viewer of the movie, mm -hmm. as I think everybody on this planet was. <laughs> I haven't met someone that didn't see Mary Poppins as a child and wasn't deeply affected by it somehow. And why do you think that is? What is it about the story? Because I, I'm, I'm still, I've seen Mary Poppins Returns, and I'm still kind of struggling to, to figure out why it hit me in the way that it did. I know, I don't know. I think there's a sort of perfect alchemy in that movie um, of, of the songs and the uh, sets and the characters and the mother and father are so mm -hmm. brilliant, played brilliantly by Glynis Johns and David Tomlinson. But also at the center and the heart of it all is this very an enigmatic character, mm -hmm. Mary Poppins. And, and who is she? And I think we've all fantasized about having this kind of mental figure in our childhoods or in any time of our lives. And, um, and she embodies that kind of strange teacher figure somehow that isn't quite apparent, um, but, but, but can guide you to see the world in different ways right. and take you on these magical adventures. And where does she come from? She comes on this, arrives on this cloud. And where does she go to? And does she only, she seems to only hone in on the Banks family. Yeah. Are there other families that she visits, or is she just obsessed by the Banks family? Well, I always wondered whether she's really real or not, whether she is just a figment of their imaginations that comes in during times of trouble to sort of collectively help them out. Yes, I think that's a very good... She's like the power of the imagination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good notion. But the first movie had so many surreal moments in it that are almost... I mean, I don't want to sound pretentious, but yeah. there's all, they're like the, the bit when the nannies all get... Mm -hmm. uh, floated away on the wind, yeah, you know, yeah. they get blow, there all these nannies lining up for the job interview at the beginning of the movie, all dressed in black. And then somehow magically the wind whisks them, blows them all down the street. And it's like a Fellini movie yeah. or something. It's yeah, so yeah. odd. And I think these moments, you don't realize it till you look back at it as, as an adult, but they, they're really affecting, you know. 
Was there any sense of burden or responsibility because the first movie is so well-loved? Would it play on your mind a little bit? Like, we're, we're doing this again, and people have such high expectations. Yes, I think there was, a, there was an enormous pressure, but, uh, you know, it's funny, it's, it's, it's since doing all the press, this enormous press tour for the movie that I think it's really hit home to all of us, quite how kind of uh, daunting and, and scary and potentially foolhardy the whole enterprise <laughs> was. But there was something about the way that Rob Marshall, who is the brilliant director um, and mastermind behind the whole thing, conceived it and pitched it. I mean, when I when I found the project, it was by going to have a meeting with Rob and him literally pitching me the story. There wasn't a script at that point. And talking, he talked very sort of impressively and inspiringly about how uh, if there was ever a time that we needed Mary Poppins as a sort of as a culture, as a community, we needed Mary Poppins to come back and, and help us through the sort of pain and confusion of being alive at this moment. This was this was the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then he talked about how he wanted to make the, the children in the original movie grown up now so that you see how life has battered them a little bit and, and how as a, as a grown up you, you do sort of need Mary Poppins more than you ever did as a child. It's interesting because the film from its opening moments is all about uplift or, or, or much about uplift, but it doesn't shy away from some of the sadder elements of the story in the film, and this doesn't give anything away. Michael Banks' wife has passed away a year before, and there are at least two songs. He sings one, I think it's called In Conversation, and then there's another one uh, about uh, the place for lost things yes. that Mary Poppins sings later that are really heart-wrenching. Yes. I mean, this is not a movie that, that is uh, afraid to to you know kind of balance out all the uplift and the glee of the big dance numbers and song and dance numbers was something that feels very concrete and something very real yes and painful yes mm -hmm. and people have cried uh, often yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, coming out of the movie I think they feel they feel joy and 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 they also realize looking back on it that they cried yeah. um, but what what Rob again I think achieved so masterfully was he never let the ball drop and even in these moments of great sadness and pain um, he would tell us, don't play the sadness, you know, that will come through. And right. I think, especially in the performances of the little children in the movie who are just expert um, and beautiful, you know, even when they're singing about the death of their mother and missing her and Mary's trying to comfort them, that they, they never play the kind of sadness. They're mm -hmm. always trying to be brave. And there's something about seeing people who are sad trying to be brave that is just killer it just breaks your heart and makes you cry it, it does it does it, those scenes are really really effective the yeah. songs are beautiful all the songs are new um, they're little snippets of old Mary Poppins music woven into the yes, score yes. but all the songs are new and, and and I thought so effective there's something about and you, you touched on this there's something about these stories of childhood Mary Poppins returns something of Christopher Robin that was out earlier this year that are all about you know how difficult life becomes as you get past a certain age uh, but about how important it is to maintain a kind of a youthful spirit yeah and and I don't know if it's just the times we're living in or whether that's just a good notion whether it's 2018 or 1918 yes yes yeah. I mean I don't I, I it, it's funny I it's only in doing this movie that I've really started to think about that notion mm -hmm. and how important it is and I actually think it's the best sort of medicine for life and when you see someone like Dick Van Dyke 
who appears um, just so monumentally in the towards the end of the movie and gets up on a desk and does a tap dance and then sits by the desk and does an incredible monologue at age 92 at age 92 yeah. and you and and talking to him off the set or on the set while we were waiting for the camera to roll over, you realize that he embodies the spirit of the mm -hmm. movie. He is somebody who age 92 still absolutely has got the sort of childish sense of wonder and curiosity yeah. and joy and that that's, that's the antidote to all of the confusion and the pain. Yeah. But it's quite hard to remember it. Well, you have smaller children, right? Yes, so I've maybe, they're, maybe they're a reminder. They are, they are, but you still need reminding. You still need a bit of a Mary Poppins to come and sort of kick you up the butt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't want to give anything away, but there is a scene in the film where you fly, and I'm told you're afraid of heights, so I thought when they thought this, uh, when they shot this, maybe she's only this far off the ground and it's some sort of illusion. Then I read quite differently. No, yeah, I was suspended about 40 feet uh, above London it, and, it on really, a crane. Like it's not in a set? It wasn't on a set. No, it no. was in. It was in. It was out in the real world, and we were suspended from these cranes. I think another part. I mean, it was terrifying, and I'm also yeah. very terrified of singing. I've got phobias about singing, and flying, and I had to do both at once, which was deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. But um, but by the magic of movies, I look like I'm enjoying it vaguely. <laughs> but um, I think something else that Rob did decided to do, which has really paid off in the in the finished movie, is to keep everything as as real as possible so there's right. no cgi right. even the parrot umbrella when he talks is, puppet, is an right? animatronic yeah. yeah. thing we're actually flying suspended from ropes we're not just hovering somewhere above the ground um we're very high up in the trees <laughs> of shepherds and studios um and so uh, there's something old school about and then mm -hmm. also the animation of course which he got yeah. hand drawn and yeah. some of the original animators from the original movie in their 80s uh, were part of the, well. the drawing of the, the cartoon sequence, the animated sequence. It must have been special for you. You live in the United States now, but you're from London and love London, and it must have yes. been special to shoot there. Yes, well, I'm always, any excuse to go back to London. <laughs> if someone said go and pick up a postage stamp from London, I would fly back there just to do it. But to have this excuse yeah. was just something special. And, and of course, because Mary Poppins ha has such clout as a sort of title, it opens doors everywhere. And we right. shut down the Buckingham Palace and the Mall, and we our trailers were positioned literally on the Mall, looking into Prince Charles's garden. I was <laughs> drinking a cup of tea, looking to see if I could see him in his underwear, but or I didn't. having his uh, shoelaces ironed. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, and we filmed outside St Paul's Cathedral and and in the you know the old Bank of England. And yeah, Trafalgar that, Square, I think, yes. is in there, and it's empty. I was like, I know. Well, how did they do how, it? How did they do that? But yeah. they did. <laughs> <laughs> and the original movie was was shot on a soundstage in Los Angeles, yeah. so we we did we upped it we upped it in that sense. <laughs> well, congratulations on it. Thank you so and much. Thank you so much for the treat. Oh, it's lovely to see you. Thank you. That was the wonderful Emily Mortimer. She's the star, one of the stars, of Mary Poppins Returns. That's in theaters right now. A perfect movie for the holidays, a perfect movie for the whole family. Next up, we're going to meet a comedian you've been watching for years on television. His name is Greg Proops. He's one of the world's great improvisers. And we're going to talk about a lot of things. Robin Williams among them. He was really good friends with Robin Williams and he's got some really touching stories to tell about that. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. A little bit later, you're going to meet Travis Knight. He's the director of Bumblebee. That's the new Transformers movie. And if you're tired of the 
loud and proud Transformers movies of the past, the big Michael Bay movies, uh, stick around. You'll want to hear about this film. It's a much different look at the Hasbro toy franchise movies, uh, and it's uh, it's pretty great stuff. So stick around for that. Also, we'll meet some of the stars of Aquaman, and we'll talk to John Krasinski. He is the director of A Quiet Place. That's one of my favorite movies of the year. So I wanted to sort of have a, a look forward, what's in theaters right now, and a little look back at some movies that maybe you missed when they came out the first time. Right now, though, we're going to introduce you to Greg Proops. He's an actor, a stand-up comedian, and a television host. You know him from Whose Line Is It Anyway? He was also on Drew Carey's Green Screen Show, and he's done all sorts of voice work. You know Greg Proops, and you've been laughing, maybe not at him, but with him for many, many years. We had the chance to sit down. We talked about a lot of stuff in a really wide-ranging interview. Uh, We talked about Robin Williams and his friendship with Robin Williams. We'll get to that in just a little while. But he has a new comedy album out. And these days, you don't think of comedy albums in the same way maybe that I did when I was a kid. You could pick up Cheech and Chong or George Carlin or whatever it was and enjoy it at home and you actually had physically had the record in your hand. Well, you don't really buy the records anymore. You download them so you don't actually hold it in your hands. Uh, It's a much different thing, but still just as funny. Here's my interview with Greg Proops. I just did a new album and uh, I had a bunch of material I prepared and I wrote a couple things that I'm quite happy with. And then I improvised a bunch of stuff, too, which, of course, came out just as funny, which tells me that I can't (laughs) predict whether my writing's going to be better than my improv. Well, it's funny. I just watched the Robin Williams documentary, and uh, the producer of his Live at the Met show said, oh, we road-tripped that thing forever. We were on the road, and we did the whole thing. And then Robin gets up at the Met and improvises, I can't remember, it was 40% of it, and that's what made it in. He said he didn't do half the stuff that that we had planned, and that worked in front of an audience. It's because he was in that zone. He was in that moment, I guess. He was an extraordinary. I I had occasion to know him. I'm from San Francisco, and he was a San Francisco guy. And he always called me Mr. Proops, which I couldn't have been prouder of. (laughs) He never called me Greg, and all the time I knew him, he would go, oh, Mr. Proops, good to see you. (laughs) And uh, we did a bunch of shows together, and we improvised together, and I interviewed him. Uh, we did a, the last show I remember was 2010. He had just done Conan, and the next night we were doing a show at Yoshi's Jazz Joint, um, which is no longer there, but it's in San Francisco. And um, we were standing backstage together, and he came in very shy. He was a shy cat. Yeah. yeah. If you just were hanging with him, he was, he, he, oh, hello. Yeah. Uh, it, but once he got on stage, of course, he was the Tasmanian devil. And um, I said, um, I'm not going to introduce you because we're in San Francisco, man. I go, there's no, you know, yeah, you don't no introduce need. Robin. <laughs> I go, let's just bum rush the stage. And he goes, oh, all right. We walk out on stage together and that's it. Yeah. He did maybe an hour and a half. I just threw him the ball every once in a while. There's pictures of us, which I'm so grateful for. No video, sadly. And I'm doubled over laughing the whole time, of course. Wow. Um, he was able to extemporize. He had the combination of um, no fear an absolute total re- instant recall. Mm-hmm. Anything he'd ever heard, seen, or digested in his life, he was able to, yeah, the Rolodex, uh, to use an ancient yeah, word, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was there. And on top of that, he could play. So I could throw him the ball, he could throw me the ball, you know, like, um, the, the, he never lost the childlike um, quality, which is so important, like Jonathan Winters, yeah, who was yeah. his idol, who I also had occasion to meet, although I never got to work with him. Um, I interviewed Jonathan a couple times, and he would do an old man character when he was old, yeah. which was funny. All of a sudden, he'd be going like this, and you're like, you're 80. 
you're, uh, 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 he used to go to the grocery store and improvise, um, Jonathan Winters, and, and where he lived in Montecito. Yeah, like, yeah. He'd just go anywhere and improvise in front of people. He'd walk into the bank and go, hey, and there, and there. All of a sudden, he's an Indian chief in yeah. the bank. And half the people liked it, half yeah. the people didn't. He didn't care. I remember seeing Robin <laughs> Williams on The Tonight Show, and this was, I guess, during the Leno years. And I don't know if you remember, but they used to, uh, as the act was being introduced, the person being introduced, they'd show them backstage way right. behind the curtain. And Robin was standing there, hands clasped, head down. And as soon as that curtain opened, boom, yeah. this light happened. You know, you could really feel the the difference between the offstage and onstage Robin Williams. No question. And he also was someone who... I've never seen another performer. I've seen the Rolling Stones and David Bowie and this and that. Uh, uh, people loved him. Yeah. They were vibrating with excitement because he was there. There was the the light, like you say. He gave off so much love, and people loved him so much that when he was just in the room, people were losing their minds. And I've never really seen that with another comedian. I've asked British comics, and they said Billy Connolly in the day. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've yet to see it since then. There's magnificent comedians who will, you know, trap you in their world of goodness and yeah. and spin a web of trickery about you. But he had that extra special rock star charisma. Yeah. Made... There's there's a lot. I, I, one of the things I do is interview famous people, yeah. and 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 so you meet lots of them, and it's that that very rare handful that feel different than the rest of them. And I can tell you, Maya Angelou was one uh -huh. of them. Oh, there I was guess. just a difference about her right. than, than there was anyone in the room. And it's interesting, when I met her, I met her initially at a party, and I didn't know what she looked like. Right. And and I walk through, and then I see her, and I'm like, that can, that can only be her. She yeah. is different than everyone else in this room. I was once at a cocktail party in New York City, uh, and uh, it was... Um, Alan Cumming was there and, and Steve Croft from 60 Minutes. A mm. lot of like famous New York people were right. at this party. The door opened and Clint Eastwood came in and it was for one of his movies. We were we were there to, to, to have a look at one of his films. And he walked in and the 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 shape of the room changed. The, the, yeah. the, the room tilted towards him and people are like, oh my God, Clint's here, Clint's here, Clint. Oh my God, Clint's here. Right. Behind him was Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, and no one noticed Leo because Clint wow. Eastwood had that thing. Yeah. Wow. It's a crazy thing. And he had it a lot longer. It's astonishing. How, Maya Angelou was quite tall, though, wasn't she? She was, but she was sitting. When I, when yeah. I spied her, she was sitting. But honestly, it just felt different. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, my wife said Allen Ginsberg. She, my wife worked at City Lights for years. And wow. she said he, not only did Allen Ginsberg have that charisma, he was better with people than anyone she ever saw because people would flock to him yeah. because he was a guru and a sage, a Buddhist and a Jew, a beat poet and a philosopher. Um, a homosexual and this everything. Yeah. Uh, 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 people would come up to him and be like, I pour their soul out to him. And he would very zen, like take it on board, make eye contact, hold them. And then she said, like a zen alarm would go off and the people would go, bye, thank you. And he had that ability to like wow. next without pushing anyone away. That's a little sample of my chat with Greg Proops. The new comedy album is called The Resistance. And also, check out one of his books. He's got a book called The Smartest Man in the World. It's based on a podcast that he does, and it's pretty great stuff. He's an entertaining guy. Uh, and also, if you want to see him live, keep your eyes out because they are always constantly on tour with a show called Who's Live Is It Anyway, which is, a, of course, a takeoff on the improv show they did for a long time called Whose Line Is It Anyway? When we come back, Travis Knight, director of Bumblebee, is in studio. The Transformers franchise back in the theaters this week for the sixth time in 11 years. 
but it feels a little different this time. New director, a guy called Travis Knight. If you're a fan of stop-motion animation, you know his movies like Coraline, The Box Trolls, Paranorman. He was an animator on all of those. Last year, he made a movie called Kubo and the Two Strings, really beautiful movie. This is his first live action film, and it feels different. It feels more human. It feels a little bit more gentle. I really like this one. Here's my interview with Travis Knight. Congratulations on Bumblebee. Thank you. So your connection to Bumblebee, we'll get to the movie in a sec. Your connection to Bumblebee dates back uh, from when you were uh, a small boy. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up in that era, and that's when the Transformers were born in the mid-80s. And so I remember you know, rushing home after school to, to watch the latest episode of Transformers just because I thought it was so cool. I'd never really seen anything like it before. And you know, I played with the toys. I read the comics. And so to be here you know, 30 years later and to be able to tell a story about one of these characters I've loved for, for pretty much my whole life, it's a real thrill. Well, I liked what you had wrote in a director's letter about this. Uh, about Bumblebee, the character specifically, because he wasn't as big as the other Transformers, no. and he wasn't as cool as the other guys. You know, no. it's, it's a much different thing. And, and on that level, he's relatable because he's kind of like us. He's, he's the most like us, yeah. And he was always the one Transformer who had the strongest connection with people. And I thought that was a fascinating aspect of his character, and we don't really explore why in any of the other films. And so this film offered us, you know, because it's an origin story, it offered us an opportunity to really lean into that and figure out why he is the way he is. And what does it say about him? What does it say about us? You know, he's this, you know, space-age robot who comes thundering down to Earth, and, uh, and he's a stranger in a strange land. Why does he connect with us? And this, this film answers that question, and it's because of his relationship with Haley Steinfeld's character, Charlie. Well, and his, and it sounds strange to say that this robot has kind of soulful blue eyes, but there's <laughs> yes. something about the eyes yeah. and the way that they flutter when he looks at her and that sort of thing that changes everything in that character. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an animator's trick. It's, yeah. uh, you know, as a professional animator, I've been doing this now for over 20 years, and it's what we do is we breathe life into something that doesn't have any of its own. And so you're always looking, you know, you're essentially as an animator, you're, you're, you're a student of human behavior and movement and, and, and motivations, and so you bring that kind of perspective to this character, trying to bring him to life, make him feel real, to make it make him feel like he's a living, breathing, thinking, emoting thing. And uh, I'm really proud of the performance. I think the robot really completely feels real. So, as an animator, you've worked on lots of things, but Coraline, Box Trolls, Paranorman, uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, you directed uh, last year or a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, beautiful movies, Thanks. sort of one and all. This is live action, so it's a little different. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also, you know, under the shadow of Steven Spielberg, who I think, you know, cast a very long shadow in your life as well. Movies yeah. like E.T. and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, and Michael Bay, who's directed all the other films. Did Michael Bay take you aside and say, all right, this is what you got to do? <laughs> Ever? What was his name? No, he was actually really great. You know, we sat down at the beginning and it was a real privilege for me to sit down director to director, you know, artist to artist and talk about his, how he'd approached these robots and this whole franchise for the last 10 years. Uh, and so it was, it was really great to kind of crawl inside his brain and see what made what, what he thought about all this. And in the end, um, you know, I knew that I was going to have my own take on it, my own philosophy on this story, on, the, on this franchise. And so he was, he was great with, you know, he, he, he essentially said, this is your movie, make your movie, and I'm here to, you know, protect and support you. And that's exactly what he did. And how does E.T. play into all of this? Because when I, when I, watched the film, I walked out, and in my review I wrote something about it falls in the line of these 80s movies like E.T. that have this 
fantastic character in the center of them uh, that that interacts perfectly with humans. And I guess that's it, right? Yeah, that's it. I mean, I, the film is meant to you know evoke that great you know Amblin era. Uh, a film, you know, from the 80s when I grew up. And, you know, those films always had a really beautiful sense of wonder, laughter, tears, and a strong beating heart at the center of it. And uh, and that's the spirit that I tried to capture in this film. I mean, E.T. was the first film that moved me to tears. I was eight years old when I saw it with my mom. And it really had a, a, an incredible effect on me. And on, on some level, that was the, the film and then Spielberg's films that followed that inspired me to become a filmmaker to begin with. And so to pay tribute to that era and those films specifically with this movie, it was, it was really important. And I, I think the film captures that kind of spirit. And Haley Stansfield is great in this film. She almost reminded me of a silent film actress sometimes mm-hmm. because uh, of the expressiveness of her face. She does a lot with very little often. She does. I mean, there's a lot of scenes where she has very little dialogue, and it's all really in her expression, her gesture, in her, her in her eyes. And she, uh, I mean, she really is extraordinary, particularly when you consider that for most of the movie she's acting against thin air. There was never a robot there on set. That was all stuff that well, we had. She's looking at a rubber ball or something with ball eyes or something, or yeah, a, a little stand-in, or some, most of the time nothing. And so when you consider that, you know, how, how nuanced and emotional her performance is, it really is extraordinary. She's a, an amazing actor. That was Travis Knight, director of Bumblebee. That's in theaters right now. Also in theaters right now is Aquaman. Yes, that's right. Aquaman has his own movie. He's played by Jason Momoa. And there's not one but two villains in this movie. One played by Patrick Wilson. That's King Orm. And then we have Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who plays Black Manta. I had the chance to sit down with them recently. Here's a taste of that interview. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Thank it's you. already a big hit elsewhere. That must be exciting, right? It's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why are we here? No, no complaints. Yes, I know. Why are we doing this? <laughs> right? Everyone already we don't need loves a the movie. movie anymore. So it's good. Yeah, it's always good to you know see the fans respond in such a large way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I read a great quote that Hugh Jackman told you that villains are the best parts to play. Yeah. They got the best lines, they work the least amount of days, uh-huh. and they win all the fights except for the last one. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, man. Is, what, is, is that what uh, sort of pushed you towards playing uh, the character in Aquaman? You know, I, once I got the job, I knew that I was going to do it, you know, like whether or not he gave me that, you know, right. that or not, you know what I mean? Uh, but it, it was it was a little tidbit that I came on set with, and I said, well, you know, uh, I'm going to go and play the role and then see, see how it holds up. And... Uh, it definitely held, you know, it definitely held its own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stay true. Right. And, Patrick, do you see your character as a villain? I mean, he's kind of sort of the villain, but he's he's going about the things that he does for a very specific reason, for right. reasons about the ecology and everything else. Perhaps you right. can explain that. Is he a villain right. in your eyes? Uh, I mean, he is only in that I can read comics and understand it. The, <laughs> yeah, I can look through the, the super villains of Aquaman. Yeah, yeah. You see Black Manta. You see <laughs> Ocean Master. So, um, but you know, you, you you never play a villain as a right. as a villain. I don't know what that even means. Mm-hmm. I think uh, typically actors get attracted to to the roles too because usually villains have the clearest. Uh, through line, right? right? They've got something to achieve, whether mm-hmm. it's global domination, whether it's revenge yeah. from a very personal matter like Black Manta or with Orm, who's a, uh, the half-brother of Arthur. And so there's a very complicated relationship with a brother that he's never met. Uh, and then the fact that he knows he can, if he can get four of the seven undersea kingdoms mm-hmm. together, he can become Ocean Master and go and fight the surface world for destroying his ocean. Yeah. So he becomes this environmental warrior. 
Yeah, because you have a number of speeches in the film that talk about <laughs> the poisoning our children and, yeah. and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's nice, and it's nice that you know Aquaman has the comics have a rich history with, uh, like all comics do, really, of, of echoing social issues, political issues, and environmental issues. And you can't do a sea movie about Aquaman and not deal with the ocean. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I like that they leave it up to the villain because it actually enables a much more um, visceral, uh, violent response, maybe even irrational. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's sort of cathartic for people because I think people will see our characters. And they, they get it. They maybe mm-hmm. don't agree with how we go about it, but they get it. They yeah. And they understand, like, mm-hmm. well, I get why he's angry. And he's yeah, like, yeah. well, I, I, I would do the same thing. I get why Ocean Master wants to do it. And, yeah, yeah you have to wear the suit. And yeah, the suit yeah. is iconic. Yeah. And But it, it looked, to me, awkward to wear as an actor because the head is so much larger yeah. than everything else. And, and as an actor, you know, body movement, all that sort of thing is very important. Very w- important. Was there a trick to that? Or there must have been. You get in and you, and you, and you look silly and you feel silly for the first. <laughs> You know, 45 minutes of oh, yeah. it. Uh, you you definitely have to take it on a test drive because it's not intuitive. You know what I mean? And oh, yeah. my goal was always to you know even even in the working out of it all. You know, you want to wear this wear the costume and not have the costume wear you. You That's know what right. I mean? So, uh, but you eventually, right, right, right. You know, eventually after. After taking it around the block a couple of times, then you then you get to really feel how how, how badass he literally took it around the block. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, and you know, next Halloween. There's going oh, to be yeah. a lot There's of those on the streets. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm already bumping into kids. Right, yeah. bumping into kids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you take the helmet off, and that's what you. That, that's what they're that's, that's, that's the way to do it. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> there you well, go. congratulations on it, guys. Thank and, you uh, very yeah, much. We'll see you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's funny. That was Patrick Wilson and Yaya Abdul Mateen II. They're the stars of Aquaman in theaters right now. When we come back, two of my favorites from 2018. In this segment, we're going to have a look at two of my favorite movies of 2018, A Quiet Place and Eighth Grade. A little bit later, director John Krasinski will be here to talk about A Quiet Place. First up, though, Bo Burnham talking about Eighth Grade. This is a fantastic little movie about a girl who's going from grade 8 into grade 9, and she's feeling the pressure that comes along with that, trying to reinvent herself. This is a movie that will appeal to people of all ages. It's fantastic stuff. Nominated for a bunch of Golden Globes, by the way. Here's Bo Burnham. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Appreciate so, on the internet, we're all kind of 8th graders, is a quote from you. What does yeah. that mean? I just think, the, yeah, I think the internet makes 8th graders of us all it feels like or definitely feels like when I look at my friends that are you know 20, in their late 20s and 30s <laughs> I'm like why are we acting like 13 year olds um, <laughs> I mean the internet elected a 13 year old president in my country you know what I mean like it just seems like the cultural discourse is happening at an 8th grade level a little bit so like to be able to talk about it with an actual 8th grader actually becomes way more honest and, and let you know because sometimes when we talk about the internet in terms of adults, it just becomes so hateable so easily. Yeah. And, 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 and to talk uh, about it through a kid, you can kind of forgive yourself a little bit more. You can maybe look at your own narcissism and your own need to self-express and see it in a kid and be like, oh, right, I'm just kind of scared and want love and want connection. Well, that's what this movie is all about. It's just her trying to connect and uh, through the videos that she makes, through the curated Instagram page where she gets up, puts makeup on, and then goes back to bed, takes a picture and says, just out of bed. You know, that's stuff that we all know that happens. Uh, But to see it uh, so beautifully rendered on the screen, I thought... Uh, made me think about it differently and made me think about what's really behind all that, which is just a search for connection. Yeah. Even though she's surrounded by people 
they tend to communicate via screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think it's often talked about in terms of like the self-obsessed generation is yeah. super narcissistic and into themselves and selfie, and it's yeah, like. Yeah. I, I, someone that is, is the sort of elder of that generation that lived a little bit of it but still had a sense of myself before the internet sort of became ubiquitous or social media became ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wanted to advocate on behalf of these kids and go, like, that's just not true. It's something sadder and stranger and, and than that. That, that. that it isn't just kids that are narcissistic. It is kids that are self-obsessed, but they're culturally required to be self-obsessed. Mm-hmm. It's a bummer to have to think about yourself all the time. It's not a good feeling. No, it's not a good feeling. And, and, and it is, I think, uh, more prevalent now than it was when I was young, mm. pre-internet. Uh, we just simply didn't document ourselves in a way uh, that, that people do now. And it does. It forces you to think about yourself and think more damagingly about how other people are regarding you. Yeah, well, I think like it's a pretty natural thing for... And the universal in terms of any generation, like, when you're that age, you're worried about what you're like, how people are perceiving yeah. you, what you are, how you fit into the world. Um, but now it's just, so it's not like the internet's introducing new feelings or, or to these kids, but it's just new degrees of that feeling, more depth of that feeling, a longer duration of that right. feeling. You used to be able to leave your social life at school, and now it follows you everywhere you go from the moment you open your eyes to the moment you close them. Like, it's so... It's just an intense sort of like, it just feels like adolescence on some kind of drug or something. I mean, it's just right. like it's so hyper-stimulative and dense. It feels like a, yeah, some sort of like, like they boiled, they boiled adole- the, the adolescence of the 80s. And, you know, right, it's like just to add its essence. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's a little scary. Tell me about the, the creation of Kayla, the main character. She's in her last week of uh, grade eight, mm-hmm. about to go th- that next step up, which seems like such a huge step when mm-hmm. you're in grade eight, going to grade nine, it's a new school, right. there'll be older people, it's a, it's a much different thing. But uh, tell me about what inspired her. I thought it was interesting that you would make this film uh, about a young girl rather than you know a boy, which might have been more relatable for you mm. but maybe not I don't know yeah I mean I didn't want it it would have been more relatable to my 8th grade experience not relatable to my current experience right. and that's what I wanted to serve I didn't really care about my 8th grade experience yeah. in terms of I didn't want to make a memory I didn't want to right. make something nostalgic I wanted to talk about my feelings currently which were anxious and unsure and in my own head and as I sort of tried to get to know kids of this age and research it like the girls are just feeling that much more. The girls just have a slightly richer and more complicated interior life at this age than the boys do. Yeah. Um, and I think anxiety runs more commonly in the girls of that age than the boys. One, because I think their self-awareness is just a little higher at that age. And two, I think culturally we're just kind of forcing young girls to think about themselves as ideas in the world way more than we are boys. Um, and I had to, as a comedian, think of myself as an idea in the world. You know, like, as someone who is a little D-list celebrity, I think that's kind of how we treat all young girls in the, in the culture. We force them all to treat themselves like little D-list celebrities or something. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that was the sort of impulse of it. It was to... Um, yeah, I did relate to her now. And that's, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't really care about my youth. I mean, I really was actually wasn't even setting out to make a story about young people. I was just trying to make a story about what it felt like to be alive right now. And, and then I stumbled on this time and this kid. 
Well, she's fantastic in the yeah, film. She's got uh, a face that is empathetic. You, you, there, there's something about her that draws you in. Mm. And uh, I thought it was really interesting, and I read this, and, and we'll wrap it up here, but uh, she makes this movie, she's brilliant in the film, and then doesn't get cast in her high school play. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Wow. Yeah, so Mr. Donia from Thousand Oaks High School is bad at his job. I told, I, I, I promised her I'd, I'd talk ill about him all over the country, so I'm doing that. Well, here we are, well, you fulfilled your promise. Appreciate Thanks it. so much, man. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for the time. That was Bo Burnham talking about 8th grade. Check it out. It's really good stuff. I also loved a movie called A Quiet Place. I interviewed director John Krasinski. You know him from The Office. You know him playing Jack Ryan. Well, he's behind the camera as well as in front of the camera for A Quiet Place. A story about a world where you cannot make a sound, otherwise monsters will attack you. We talked about casting the hearing-impaired actress Millicent Simmons in one of the lead roles. We started putting some people on tape and stuff, but... Millie's name came up immediately um, because it was non-negotiable, as I'm sure you've read, that it was non-negotiable for me to not have a deaf actress. And then Laura Rosenthal had just cast Wonderstruck, so I said, you must have had a wide net cast. She said, I did, but you really should see the girl from the movie. And I said, oh, okay. And I was thinking probably slightly... Um, pretentiously, like, yeah, but I'm going to have my own discovery. And she was like, "Mm, you don't need one. She's as good as it gets. And so I wrote an email to Todd Haynes, who I didn't know, but was such a huge fan of, and just said, could I ever watch the audition? And he sent it, and he said, she's not only the best actress uh, you'll ever work with, but she's one of the greatest human beings. And that's true. Is I think what comes across in this film is not only how good they are and how capable they are as actors, but they actually brought so much of who they are. You know what I mean? You really see Noah is such a sweet boy and such a good kid, and like... I'm sorry, in this day and age, especially as a parent, I look around and, and clap for any parent who can get their kid to be that nice and that good and that... Especially on a film set where they're Absolutely. getting coddled and probably and there's candy at 3 o'clock. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And yeah, these yeah. kids were just such good kids and they brought so much of their own essence to the, to the part, which is, I think, something we all try to bring is something real to these parts so that we're not acting, we're trying to live believably. And I think that they do. They genuinely lived through these parts, so much so that on the last day of shooting, I mean, man, were there tears. These two, these two kids were not, you know, co-workers. They were best friends, if not family. They had gone so far, and, and it was really hard. It was really like breaking up a family at the end of the movie. And then, you know, like I, I'm sure you know, but with Emily, it was that I always wanted her to do it when I was rewriting, but the, the two versions of this in my head were going to go really wrong. I asked her to do it, and she says no, oh yeah, which yeah, makes yeah. dinner really awkward. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. Um, she says, yeah, for you, I'll do it. And I went, oh, she can't yeah. do it for me. Because yeah. then I know myself, right? And I'm, I'm a very... Um, you know, you know, uh, it, I don't know. The old saying is like, if you're going to hit me, hit me in the face, not in the back. You know, like I, I just want the bad news straight. And I don't want to know that she's doing something for me. I think it's because I was, I have been witness to exactly the specificity, exactly the high level of taste that she has. And I've seen how good a career she has because of what she's chosen to do. She has, she is her career. Yeah. And so I didn't want her to, um, choose this for me and then have it be a weird experience. I needed her to come to it on her own. So when she asked me to read the script, I thought, well, you know, here's your chance. And I let her read the script. Didn't think she'd say yes to honestly, I didn't. Um, she was doing Mary Poppins. We had our second child. So whatever, um, she was busy. And then she said, you can't let anybody else do this role. And I know it sounds corny, but it's true. It's, it's still the greatest compliment in my career because I know what it takes to get her to say yes. And you guys did a thing that I thought was so cool that you 
played a game with one another about mm-hmm. being quiet. Yeah. And that and it's such a cool and then it would be like you're dead. Yeah. If you did like you But just, it is true yeah. and and it's funny cuz it was Emily who um one night she said, "Man, I mean, living silently would be hard, right?" And I said, "Yeah." And then she said, "No, but like really hard." And then as the weeks went by, we would constantly make note of it. And then it wasn't even like getting silverware to make the kids lunch or anything like that. It was more like you're putting the kids to bed and the bed cre- you know, yeah. creaks or, or something. And you just thought, wow, we are legitimately surrounded by sound. Or what if somebody snores? I kept yeah, thinking exactly. that. What yeah, if somebody yeah, yeah. snores yeah. while they sleep? Or, yeah. or, uh, but there's all the little details in the movie that work really well, like when they're having dinner and they're eating off leaves. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, like cutlery would be... You know, exactly. Yeah, that was an old um, thing that I got from... Um, I remember in seventh grade, I took a class called Medieval Times or Medieval Studies or something. And I remember them telling us that the chargers back then were made out of bread so their plates were made of bread so that they could eat the whole thing and then not have to do dishes and i thought wow it's pretty genius and then when i thought of that for this and then actually from that same class came the fires that the dad lights the fires and yeah, so yeah. that was the way to communicate without making telephone calls and yeah. it was just a lot of stuff i didn't know i'd been collecting all over the years that i got to use that's how it all it's that's that's how it all comes, out, yeah. all comes out i don't know yeah. how i'm going to do another one because i i took all my good ideas <laughs> John, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words. Oh, no problem. And congratulations on it. That was John Krasinski. Have a look at A Quiet Place. If you haven't seen it yet, it's fantastic stuff. I want to thank all my guests for coming by. Most of all, though, I want to thank you for listening in all year. We've had a fantastic year. We're looking forward to doing it with you all again in 2019. Have a safe and happy holiday.